Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. And this week is something two and a half months in the making. It is finally the concluding week of Wet Hot Mutant Summer. And you have chosen the X-Men story that we will be wrapping up with so i will let you do the honors of introducing it and talking about why you really wanted to cover this story in particular well these are the two issues that i was going to talk about last week but then that got superseded by me needing to talk about the hellfire gala from 2023 new mutants uh the the krakoa era book issues 17 and 18 uh the ayala and rice run on the title and i picked these because i think they're a great example of the kind of x-men stories you can only tell on krakoa and i had a feeling krakoa was gonna go bye-bye in some form at that hellfire gala with the whole fall of x thing i didn't know how much it would go bye-bye which is why we wound up (laughs) talking about it last week and i feel like this is a really effective like this is the follow-up to that discussion where okay so you and i were both upset by the way but that story kind of gets rid of krakoa and the reason we're upset is because we can't get stories like this one anymore in a way we haven't been able to get that from krakoa i don't think since inferno ended to an extent like there just hasn't been a book like this since then There's been a major tonal shift into just, like, everything feeling like it's leading toward collapse and not really the sort of pervasive hope that is sort of necessary to drive the story forward. That, and then also, weirdly at the same time, all the problems with Krakoa start getting fixed. Like, they don't need to do the Crucible anymore, you can get resurrected without having to, like, get yourself killed in Mortal Kombat, just go through the waiting room. Or, um, you know, oh, we've we fixed our problem with clones. Or, it, like, these little things that are like, oh, this is something that's wrong with Krakoa, that makes it more interesting because there are things wrong with every society and with every country on the planet. And the only reason they stand out when you're necessarily reading the book is because, well, someone's invented this and sort of added it in. It's like, 
if you were creating a fantasy country, you don't have to include homeless people. But, like, realistically, there probably is something like that. And Krakoa being a society that, due to, like, the fact that it's on this living island, doesn't have scarcity problems, you know, doesn't have to deal with capitalism or any problems like that. You have other problems. And, like, it creates conflicts that are very different from the kind that you would normally get in X-Men, which is normally, like, people hate and fear us, and we need to try and survive slash be superheroes good enough that people aren't, like, upset that we exist anymore, depending on the X-Men book you're reading. And on Krakoa, you had mutants being like, well, I don't have to worry about my life. Now I have to worry about being happy, which is a very different kind of conflict and not one we get enough in this genre or franchise. Yeah, it's like this is cliche, but it's that sort of like surviving versus thriving thing. And in the context, at least of like pre Kakoa era type stuff, a lot of the quote unquote thriving whatever would just be like a very occasional issue of everyone sitting down and having breakfast between getting blown up, you know, and certainly I would say there were few, if none, because I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head, but I'll simply cover myself and say, this is just off the top of my head and memory, but I can't think of any series prior that sort of had as much free room philosophically as really anything in that period of the last five years did and especially as much as new mutants did yeah new mutants also just sort of by nature of the cast winds up being the closest thing to a krakowin slice of life book because the pupils are and by pupils i mean like the youngest class of mutants because you know, New Mutants, we get both New Mutants, as in the team who were called the New Mutants in the 80s, who aren't actually New Mutants anymore. And then we get more literal New Mutants, at least comparatively, in the guise of like the younger students who are also in this book. It's like with them, those are some of the only a non-literal like soldier or governmental type characters you know leading any of the books at the time because the alternatives are mostly in some form of another like a strike team a la x-men x-force excalibur again like it's magic but it's still a we're a superhero team like this is the book that sort of lets you do slice of life as a premise because these are the ones who don't have to do the top like national security shit yeah like everyone else is concerned with national security or the um the sort of cocoa and x-men team at this point is i guess an outreach program is i think the closest equivalent and then this is actually people who are living on the island and in most cases, not leaving it. 
which is sort of a status quo for most mutants at this time. Another reason that I, I picked this set of issues is that, I mean, the art's stunning. I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe we've covered any Rod Rice work before now. Yes, other than like a literal singular page and the giant size rewrite. Am I forgetting Never mind, something that's else? That's the thing I was going to mention. <laughs> yeah, like the one Rod Rice shout out we've done was an episode one of just going, what a pretty Krakoa. And um, hey, look, what a pretty Krakoa. <laughs> yeah, we're looping back around. And this is just straight up the only time we've ever done Vita Ayala, right? Yeah, who is one of my favorite current writers in comics. They are very high up there. Real quick, while we're praising them, I'll go ahead and just do the obligatory rest of the roll call crediting to Travis Lanham on lettering and Tom Mueller on design with Christian Ward doing the covers on these issues, which these covers are very pretty. <laughs> Just very yeah. flowy and trippy. It, it's it's similar to the rice art inside in that it feels like it's taking a lot of Sienkiewicz influence. Yeah. And like, it's an example of a cover artist and an interior artist being different, but it doesn't really feel like a problem or misleading because those sort of stylistic influences are just like shared and common. And even though, you know, they're distinct artists, their work doesn't look exactly the same. There's still just like a certain vibe that connects the two so that it makes sense. And of the two, I especially really like the cover to number 18 with all of the rabbits. <laughs> We'll we'll get into the rabbits in a bit. Um, so we're just sort of generally gonna talk about some of the plot points in like the first issue uh, that we're covering, issue seventeen, because another thing about this run is it's structured in a way very reminiscent of the actual like original Claremont X Men run, where there's not really any arcs. There's just like plots that are happening. Um, like there's a plot with the Shadow King that's sort of the main overarching plot of I'd say the first like eight to ten issues. I can't remember the exact number of this run, but like that's not the main plot of this. There's like three other things happening here, and none of them are like interconnected in a way that like makes this an arc at all. I, I just sort of picked these two issues because we have a a crucible issue and then the issue before where like oh i need to go to the crucible as a decision that's made and i want to talk about the crucible which is the thing i miss the most about the first like three years of krakoa yeah it all reads very well and is like just you know ongoing soap opera stuff but the crucible will be a lot of what we talk about because like even though the shadow king is here it's not really like pivotal to like the a and b plot that are really pushing this yeah it's the issue 
after it's issue 19 sort of where that gets pushed up into high gear and becomes something that like more than a couple characters are actively worrying about because i mean he's here because he's a mutant and he's gotten amnesty so you know he's allowed on the island it's perfectly fine that he's here but like he's still the the shadow king yeah but more in the spotlight here are mirage and karma who i guess tell me if i'm wrong and if i'm speaking for you incorrectly but my impression is that that is one of your favorite like pairs of x characters period i think they're really cool it, it's just this run that does this is the thing like it, I, the, I mean all of the original new mutants cast are like favorites of mine except for magma um but like this and the karma uh scrolly series that we covered uh, not very long ago at all sort of bumped her up in my esteem quite a lot and mirage uh daniel moonstar is just the coolest fucking character we have um they're on this adventure in otherworld which is the fantasy realm well it's a set of 10 fantasy realms that are at the center of the multiverse which doesn't matter beyond the fact that like if a mutant dies there they can't be resurrected because this is back when mutants could be resurrected uh prior to um well whatever the hell the status quo is is now correct me if 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 this isn't something you're picking up on let me know but do you get like a vibe that these two are meant to kiss at some point in the future in this comic it is giving the impression that that is absolutely the creator intention, whether the creators at the time believed they would be allowed to do so, you know, unclear. As far as I know, none of them have talked about it, but it's definitely giving intentionality in terms of either they wanted to literally do that or there was at least a certain vision again to go back to old school claremont there's at least a certain vision of that's clearly what's going on even if standards and practices won't okay it or less even standards and practices and more ip management i really do love the like sneaking it underneath the um the like boss's desk where they just don't notice aspect of it but to me this feels like the stuff between rachel summers and betsy braddock in excalibur and a little bit an x factor that was happening around this same time that did lead to them kissing but this plot then leads to karma having a new character created for her to kiss which I we've talked about already when we talked about the Karma series on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, I have the conspiracy theory that it see I'm even forgetting her name is a s- rapid replacement for Danny. It definitely gives that sense, yeah. Because it just kind of, especially since so the Hellfire Gala is the next issue after the Crucible fight. And it feels to me like up until the last minute, the script of the Hellfire Gala included a kiss. 
And then that scene got cut out and turned into that Pride special with them inventing a new character to replace Danny. Yeah. Which absolutely, you know, who knows? Maybe not. That's what it feels like, especially since Rice doesn't draw that Hellfire Gala special, almost as though maybe the script wasn't approved until it was a little too late for Rice to draw it. Like, there's just a lot of little things about it. But anyway, they we, we're picking up in media rest because, as I said, there's no real, like, we could either do, like, eight issues or I could just pick two to talk about. Even if we did, like, eight, I feel like these two would be the ones we most wanted to talk about anyway, so. Yeah, I, I think the stuff of the Shadow King is super interesting, but uh, we talked about this a bit before, like, Ed, but, like, neither of us feel especially qualified to talk a whole lot about the Shadow King. Yeah. Uh, that character is uh, very charged um, in a lot of ways, and I I don't feel like breaking all that down. I think that this is by far the best Shadow King arc. Like, this is the one Shadow King thing I'd be like, yeah, you should read that. But he's still the Shadow King. In the meantime, though, we have lesbians. Telepathic lesbians with different, unique variations of psychic powers. I really love their abilities. It, I, I really like the characters. It's like, oh, they do this one insanely specific thing. Um, Karma's like able to control other people mentally, but that's the one thing she can do. She can just possess you. And then Mirage can pull images out of your head, but that's it. She can't pull whatever image she wants out of your head. She also has some like psychic hours and stuff because she was on X-Force for a little while and they needed to give her some kind of 90s energy power. But like generally speaking, she's just using the pulling images out. And then they're both like been in X-Men teams for years. So they accomplish hand-to-hand fighters. But essentially they had previously been kidnapped by Merlin, who is an evil dictator of one of the 10 magical realms of Otherworld. And he has let them go with the understanding that they'll go and they'll steal something for him from his daughter Roma's kingdom, which is where we open with them fighting their way through a lot of, like, Roma's soldiers and stuff. There's a lot of... um, I really love the way their powers are visualized here. I mean, Karma sort of has the best power signature in X-Men comics with the sort of blocky, bright pink, uh, like, power signature that shows up near her head and also the head of whoever she's possessing at any given time. If they ever do another New Mutants movie and they don't do this visual, if they just have her possess people and you don't get to see shit like this, I'm gonna be so upset. Yeah, it's like in certain points even, it's like almost kind of like feels a little bit like kind of an extra layer in terms of the arts, it's kind of like a stamp or like a sound effect in terms of just like how it curves like around her head and like around the victims. And it always just looks really cool. Yeah. And then Danny's, I would say, are also a great fit for the art style because just the illusion aspect of it all works very well with Rod Rice's very 
painted, flowy, sort of, um, not sure how to put it exactly, but like willing to sort of go up and down in terms of like levels of abstraction or literal representation and just sort of like pushing the slider up and down in terms of portraying reality or not. Yeah, I especially love this one um, page, which is just like four long widescreen panels that fill up um, the page from side to side. And two of them are like dominated by the pink energy of like in the coloring are dominated by Karma's like bright pink uh, power signature. And then the panel up at the top has uh, uh, has Danny using her powers to make like a whole group of soldiers to see this nightmarish face coming at them like and it's there's no like physical space outside of the characters and it's just like the effects of their psychic powers filling in the background of each panel it looks very cool i've literally had that exact page up in front of me this whole time before you even specifically described that one i was also looking at that exact set of images while trying to describe the art yeah i i think that's in terms of like the power signature aspect i think that's the coolest page it's not the best page of these two issues but it's a great page yeah uh so the the story in otherworld continues where so they meet up with they are caught by roma who is Merlin's daughter, and basically Merlin had sent them on this mission to pick up just a vase that he liked that his daughter had taken out of his house when she moved out to have her own magical fairy kingdom instead of being like in his. Uh, so Roma helps them because the whole reason they were in Otherworld in the first place was to find a mutant who had gone there because you're not allowed to go to Otherworld because if a mutant dies in Otherworld, they can't be resurrected, which is a thing from Ten of Swords that is another fun Jeopardy aspect of these comics that got undone in the Destiny of X era not too long after this. But they meet with uh, this mutant who is... And this is a trend. We're going to be talking about some of the characters in a in a bit who are also have physical mutations. But New Mutants in the certainly the Ayala era is the one X Men book that really dealt with characters who have physical mutations now living on this island with all the other mutants. You know, none of the there, there are some characters with physical mutations in other books. Like I mean, Beast obviously in X Force. But, like, we didn't talk about this last week when we talked about the X-Men team lineups. But if you look at all three X-Men team, official X-Men team lineups that we've had in the Krakoa era, they're all mutants who pass as human. Yeah, and, like, beyond simply featuring more characters in this vein, New Mutants is also unique in the degree to which it's actually like thematically and narratively interested in addressing those topics because honestly it's central here and then it's central to 
some of what's going on with the other younger kids in one of the B plots that maybe we'll talk about a little bit in a bit. But it's sort of, I think, part of what makes these issues so enjoyable, this run so special, is the willingness to just keep plucking little ideas and implications of like, okay, how does this concept with regards to Krakoa impact various mutants who aren't just Wolverine, Storm, et cetera, et cetera, action heroes? In this case, specifically, Danny and Karma being worried that this one young mutant kid is hanging out in other world where he could theoretically die and not be resurrected. But when they find him, he's a visible mutant that basically looks like a devil, you know, like blue skinned, gigantic horns, um, an evangelicals idea of, you know, it's giving like literal, like satanic panic devil sort of imagery And so obviously this character would not be comfortable on earth. And he talks about being happier in Everworld because with all of this fantasy shit going on and just all the different types of creatures and different types of people, you know, no one really bats an eye at him for the way that he looks in the same way that they would on earth to include even to an extent on Krakoa, because again, so many mutants just look like normal humans. So it sort of provides the opportunity to briefly have a story that's like, kind of also points out the limitations of the resurrection concept, you know, because we get to have a character being like, I would rather live here where I could die because I've always accepted that I could die because I've always been in danger, but here I'm happy, and I'll take that over being uncomfortable with the possibility of being resurrected to be uncomfortable some more. I don't know how well I put that, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The one thing I'd add is there's literally a joke about him being the Jersey Devil because he's from New Jersey. (laughs) Yes, thank you. He has these big horns. I love that line, too, like... The line that's literally like me existing is responsible for this specific like cryptid rumor gaining more traction again. (laughs) And yeah, it is just better to hang out on Otherworld if you're this guy. And like he's getting to do high fantasy stuff like it. The way that there's like this pause to think about how and I think it's important to mention this is the. Is this the first X-Men book we've covered by someone who isn't white? I want to say yes. In terms of writers, I believe so. Yeah, that's specifically what I mean. Because we're, we're, yeah. In terms of, like, some of the themes and ideas that the book's talking about, like, certainly in Big Two, it's more, like, done on a scripting level. And then the art pulls that out more. Yeah. Um, Um, I guess the only exception would be the other karma story we did by trungles yes we did that too so very true both of the modern karma stories forgive me if i'm forgetting someone else but i i'm pretty sure those are the only two 
non-white writers that we've discussed in the franchise, yeah. That we've managed to, to, given the relatively limited amount of X-Men discussion we've had, is almost impressive because, like, the disparity in that is massive. It's a very white department, yeah. Yeah, and I think right now they're all white. I think so, yeah. And I don't want to, like, say that, oh, well, because Vita Ayala is a black non-binary person, they're thinking about these things. It is also, like, the opportunity of this book is that you could make it about these characters in a way that, like, Excalibur or X-Force just sort of can't be because it has to be about, like, well, this is the Black Ops book. This is the school book. You've got the kid characters to play with, and a lot of the kid characters you know, most of whom in this story already exist in some form, are mutants who don't pass as human. To a degree, but they just aren't with most of the adult, older characters that we've seen. But I think that definitely, like, bringing in new voices lets you explore new things, even when it is just in the metaphor like this. Yeah. And, like, both new topics and also just handling certain topics and just ways that feel much more well thought out and much more successfully executed. And although this one kid and other world and like Danny and Karma's trip to find him is just like one part of the plot in these issues we're talking about, I think it ties in thematically very well to the Crucible stuff. In terms of just, even though there's so much going on, all of it revolves around agency in some way, often specifically like agency of the body with regards to like one's control over themselves or ability to make their own sort of terms with themselves, their own self-acceptance or control or whatever descriptor for the exact situation you know, but like him getting to be like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do this over here is a story about him asserting his own agency and doing what he wants to do as like the B plot with the kids and their powers and all of the like going over the ethics of, like, using dead bodies for practice is also about bodily autonomy. Yeah, that's definitely the common theme of the whole, like, everything but the magic arc, which the magic arc is just about different stuff, but it's still fabulous from this run. Um, We should briefly touch on the kids. I think that we don't need to spend too much time on them because it is, this is such a small chunk of this plot because this is what becomes the main plot with the Shadow King later. But it's essentially they've been experimenting with like different combinations of their powers to find ways to sort of experience new things. And it's notable. So we have um No Girl who winds up being called Cerebella, I think, later on, because um, but she is the brain in a jar from New X-Men, who it's sort of implied used to be a passing mutant but uh she's now a brain in a jar and has been since 2001 and no one's ever 
like Nama the on Kukoa, they haven't fought to be like, oh, do you want to stop being a brain in a jar? We could grow you a new body now. Like they could do that, and they just sort of haven't. Um, there's Anol, who's like the lizard boy. Uh, I forget his name, but there's a kid made of water. And then there's Cosma, who is a creation from this New Mutants book, but I think she's technically from, she's from the Brisson run, but then gets picked up in a big way by Ayala, um, who is her power is like a, a reality warping power that's really difficult to control. And so she accidentally warped herself to look very strange and purple. And yeah, yeah, as you said, they've been experimenting with like swapping consciousness and different things like that in part to try and find their own ways to be happy and comfortable in their own skin because they're all very visible mutants and like all mutated in like pretty extreme ways. Like this isn't just like none of them are just like blue. You know, Anol's got like Anol is asymmetrical. He's got this one really big arm, and he is, I'd say, the closest to sort of being a, a human in terms of just like physical shape and texture, but he's still like scaly. Yeah, it's like he's the closest, but anyone in real life would still be freaked the fuck out by him. And, you know, like, yeah, like no girl literally floating brain and a containment thing so no other body parts no ability to use body language to communicate in that way no facial expressions and then like the water one i'm like not entirely sure what his deal is with him i'm also like is he being like partially contained by his suit you know, like with him, there's like a whole degree of like liquid versus being solid going on in terms of just like, what is that like physically? And then uh, Cosmar, of course, also just has everything in terms of like, you know, the message is everyone should be able to find themselves beautiful and you don't have to be one way, except that no one would ever want to look like her because by any real world anything you know she would be considered deformed and the story deals with that because you know just like the way her face has been stretched out of whack like the gigantic eye that takes up like a quarter of her head you know just like i just think what ayala and rice do of these characters is interesting because it is like like you said they're not just blue like here's visible mutants who sort of push fervor along the edges of just like what can be considered a mutant how far away from a standard human baseline can we go and what would living in that way be like and then they're all contrasted with scout uh Gabby Kinney, who is the clone of the Laura Kinney Wolverine, where like Noel especially, but sort of all of them are upset with her because she's trying to get them to stop, you know, hanging out with Shadow King because he's the fucking Shadow King. 
and like some of the experiments that they're doing with their powers but at the same time um like and they're upset because they feel like she can't understand what they're going through which is a fair point because she does pass as a human but then if you know scout's backstory she a lot like her older sister slash you know the girl she was cloned from was raised as a weapon by humans and didn't have autonomy over herself at all until you know not very long ago in terms of the comics it's that great sort of conflict where no one's actually an asshole and everyone's hurting each other but you sort of get why they're all coming from where they're coming from yeah like her concerns are very genuine i mean again they're hanging out and listening to the shadow king but like she it, it is correct she can't understand what they're going through except for in the ways that she actually can but then they're not listening to her when she tries to talk about this because she has in a different way lost autonomy and lost control of her body so just like this conflict it's very messy and it's very cool that like again this is something that you wouldn't get in any other x-men book like even if they were in the school i don't think you could get this story this is facilitated purely by krakoa yeah by being able to like live within the context of a full society that's mutant based like even just at the school yeah like these characters could not even comfortably go out on the town in the same way that on Krakoa, like, you know, they could theoretically find any of their needs and get them met in terms of something as simple as just, like, shopping, going and doing whatever. Like, they have all these inter-community conflicts still, obviously, but it's still a very different standard than... Oh, the Xavier Institute is the only place that I can be and not get hella heckled, I suppose, to say the least. Yeah, like at best. Um, and then to finally sort of finish out our discussion of issue 17, um, this is getting to stuff we actually summarized when we talked about the Karma series that follows this up, which um, but basically the time they spent in Otherworld means that Danny is now able to sense remnants of Karma's brother's consciousness within Karma. And so Swan realizes that the only way that they'll be able to sort of separate her from her brother and bring him back as well is via the Crucible. So we haven't talked about the Crucible before, uh, but basically, it is a mutant ceremony on Krakoa where uh, prior to Ten of Swords, um, it was you fought Apocalypse to the death. And when Apocalypse kills you, they'll resurrect you. And it was designed for the mutants who lost their powers on M-Day, uh, thanks to Scarlet Witch, as a way to limit them coming back and like filling up the resurrection queue you know like you can't just drink some nightshade they won't resurrect you if you kill yourself you have to go through this way it's 
aside from the fucked up aspect of a public ceremony where someone gets brutally killed, um, it also has like the fucked up aspect of like, well, this means that we're resurrecting and empowering people who are willing to fight to the death. You know, we're emphasizing a warrior aspect of the culture. And I mean, all of that's the point of the crucible. Like it's meant to be a little bit messed up. But also, if you read X-Men number seven, the Hick Jonathan Hickman issue that introduces the concept, it's kind of beautiful seeing someone, you know, fight so desperately for self-actualization and then win. Yeah, I mean, you, like... You, you win by getting stabbed to death, but you win. And the twist post Ten of Swords is because Apocalypse winds up going back to uh going to Amenth with his family, um the characters start choosing someone else to join up with them. And so there's a couple crucibles that happen post Ten of Swords, all of which I think are really interesting issues. But this one was my favorite. Yeah, like all of the messiness and complications of it are what make it so interesting. And it serves so many purposes, like, narratively and thematically. And, like, it is just simultaneously gruesome and beautiful. And just the juxtaposition is really what makes it. And what makes Karma's story here distinct from the other Crucible plots we get is that it's different and that she's not just doing it for herself because the whole thing is doing it for the purpose of separating her and her brother so they don't have to be, like, psychically entangled anymore. So instead of even just being, like, a matter of this character showing their determination by going through the act of getting killed... It is specifically her going through this act for the sake of her brother. So it becomes like a turn on what the Crucible started out as and that it's not even her dying for her own sake so much as that it is for his. And then that just being further complicated by their difficult relationship and his past actions and, like, all of her worries about if it's the right thing to do or how is he going to act afterward and her just having to be like, well, that's not my place to decide because it is his place to decide how he's going to act. Both the way we are right now, he can't. So I pretty much have to do this in order to even give him the agency back in that way. Yeah. Um, like, basically when this character was first introduced, which was an issue of Marvel Team-Up, uh, where it was Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four teaming up, uh, written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Frank Miller, <laughs> which, wow. Um, she was trying to raise her two younger sisters, and Tran was working for their uncle who was an evil crime boss and helping with what is very clearly his human trafficking ring 
uh, using his power set, which is identical to hers. They both have the same ability. And the resolution of the story winds up being her mind-eating him, basically, which is why he's, like, stuck in her head. Normally, not even in a way in which he is conscious or able to express himself in any way. Uh, but basically, Danny is able to sort of contact him and, like, Swan explains the situation. I suppose I should note that this set of issues is before the Karma Marvel Unlimited miniseries. So she's still called Sean here, but like Swan is established as her real name and it's far more culturally appropriate. So if whenever I remember, I, I will be using that. But if I call her Sean, um, it's because there's literally a page in front of me that says that name. So, yeah, you know, what what can you do? Yeah. Um and so like he thanks her and then they go ahead and head into the battle. Um funnily enough, the person she's chosen to kill her in in a fight is Danny and this has Callisto and Storm knife fight vibes. It's like it does except more intimate even more so even because more so. like with storm and callisto having just met it's sort of like that crackle in the air of the like first time sexual tension versus here it reads like you are the love of my life no one knows me like you do kill me i can't ask anyone else i'm telling you that that uh, Marvel Pride special short that introduced Karma's girlfriend was originally her talking to Magic, trying to work up the courage to ask Danny out because she doesn't know if Danny's into her because she's Karma's like that, you know, a character who who we actually know who she has an established relationship with. It just that's what this was, right? <laughs> It simply uh, makes more sense to read it that way. And therefore, I read it that way because the alternative would just be baffling. And like, yeah. Also, I, I've got to be honest, I ship it. I think these two would be great together. It's um, Danny is very similar to Kitty Pride in a lot of ways. Um, and it's already been well established that Karma is super into Kitty. So this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, there's very few characters in the X-Men who are as similar as, like, in terms of temperament and attitude and, like, the way they carry themselves as, like, Daniel Moonstar and Kitty Pride, And they're all, like, in this age group and they've all known each other for years. And, yeah. I keep bringing this up because I'm still annoyed because the, the Fox movies managed to make Daniel Moonstar gay. And that was, like when they were all really bad and they still managed to do this and yet the comics are like no <laughs> it's so annoying yeah uh we have some very fun like fight stuff happening here i important stuff for like the sort of b plots happening at the time um oh wow nature girl sorry a brief nature girl diversion look at that nature girl before um Literally everything that happened with that character in X-Men Green. Holy shit. He used to just be a character that would be in all the background shots like Dupe because 
there's a unique visual thing. And yeah, she was a nice cameo queen. Uh, yeah, now she's, um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> have you read, you have, I don't think you, have you read any of X-Men Green? I only read the very start of like, as far as was in when they put out that first like print issue of it. Oh God. And oh, that okay. was ages ago. Well, she's very different now. Sorry, it was just funny seeing her. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Uh anyway, the, the kids are here at the crucible, and uh Cosmo, who has been asking to have a crucible so she can be born in a body that is like not the one that she's messed up with her powers. Like another part of it is like the way that Cosmo looks especially is not like a natural part of her mutation. It's something that happened because she was out of control when her mutation first manifested and her reality warping did this. So like they wouldn't even need to change her genetic material or anything to pop her out in a body that doesn't have the swollen eye or the like oval head and the purple skin and stuff like that. Uh, but in previous issues, they turned her down because that's mutants don't have this essentially because they're saying that mutants should be perfectly happy looking like mutants. You know, you're you're allowing human society to corrupt the way that you think about yourself. Except so in and... this case, it's more like a sci-fi version of being like a burn victim or something. Like, like you said, this is not just what she looks like. And, you know, you can say all of the, everyone can be different all you want, but there's simply the reality of how she wants to look. And to quote Kitty Pride, Professor Xavier is a jerk. Actually, I think in this case, Daniel Moonstar is a jerk. <laughs> it was, I remember it was her who actually said that shit, which, like, is in character. Like, it's a flaw of Danny's that gets explored in the series later. But, um, yeah, no, it's uh, rough. It's a great, like, hero as being kind of a thick asshole moment. Like, unwittingly, but still. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Hero being a bit of an asshole, um, Danny is currently beating the shit out of Karma, but not killing her because she's not fighting hard enough. Like, the other thing about the Crucible is you really do have to try to stay alive. Like, part of the ceremony is the struggle. For... You have to fight for it. Yeah. And so, like, Karma admits the sort of difficulties that she has with like bringing Tron back her worry that you know okay she brings Tron back and he's just gonna cause trouble stuff like that you know worrying about like whether it's worth taking the risk because it's also noted that like there is a chance that they'll both be permanently changed and affected in some way by the separation like if the psychics fuck up it could like fuck them up so this is risky beyond, like, even the, like, fighting to the death stuff, which, in terms of the X-Men at this point, fighting to the death isn't really a risky proposition, but it's still not, like, pleasant. 
Yeah. Um, but as she she sort of reassures them that it's not really up to her. She's fighting for his autonomy. Uh, like she doesn't say that specifically, but that's like the summarizing. And she goes for it, and Danny kills her. We have it's it's a really fabulous page as well. And like the the representation of like the actual Danny's like actual strike that kills Swan as just like this streak, this sort of abstract streak of blood on a white like panel gap is really effective. And we just like see the moment happen right at the bottom of the page. Uh, and so Karma e- dies in Danny's arms, flirting with her. <laughs> also, Danny's learned Vietnamese. At least a little bit, I guess. Yeah, like she's learned some Vietnamese. They were going to date anyway. <laughs> and so the last of these issue ends uh, with, basically, we find out that the separation happened successfully and Swan is resurrected and, you know, pops out of the egg and Storm's there because at this point they were still having Storm do this thing where she was greeting basically everyone who got resurrected um, and all of the, like, classic new mutants who are sort of regularly appearing in this book are um, celebrating with Karma. We, we funnily enough, we don't see her brother's resurrection but, like, it's pretty clear that that's also happening, or maybe going to happen. Um, yeah, because there's yeah. just, like, the line of her being her own woman again, therefore he's not in her head, therefore. But yeah, we do, in this issue, only actually get the resurrection of her surrounded by her friends, because to some degree and like at least if in the context of just this issue we're sort of immediately settling like her victory as the send-off plus it would be it would be much more fraught or at least it would be less of an unambiguously happy moment i suppose to end on his and not hers like the way it ends after all of just the heavy everything and the brutality of the kill, the way it's done, does allow this issue to end on a much lighter, celebratory, non-like qualified note. Yeah, um, and I mean, this doesn't bother me anymore because we did get a follow up on what was going on with Tron, and it was another excellent X Men comic. So, yeah. you know, that's that's absolutely fine by me. But uh, yeah, this was. New Mutants 17 and 18. This is what we are now missing now that Krakoa is no longer populated by mutants other than like Charles Xavier crying on a beach because he at the very least believes he managed to kill every single one of them. There's a lot that these issues are indicative of in the period, you know, just like there's the surviving versus thriving aspect of it. There's the just generally strong character writing of this book in particular. There's the Krakoa culture stuff. There's all of the like disfigurement versus mutation and different bodies and agency 
over the body, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the crucible aspect of it, I think one of just the most noteworthy things about it here and in general is just the degree to which it's like a answer to the question of, well, if we get rid of permanent death, how does death still matter in a story, you know? I mean, most of the books answered that by being like, well, if you're resurrected, you don't necessarily have your memories up to the moment where you died. So, like, if a character knows an important piece of information, they need to be able to, like, tell other people before they're killed. Um, There's, like, the aspect of, well, it still kind of fucking hurts. (laughs) There's, like, a lot of things that the comics all did to solve that problem. Um eventually including what if we killed a bunch of mutants and got rid of resurrection at the same time yep uh but like the usage of death in krakoan culture is really interesting and just something i I, as i said when we were talking about the fall of x last episode, there's like at least another four years you could have done on Krakoa. Even the Krakoa that I feel by the end of Destiny of X had been stripped of some of the complexities that made it so interesting. Like, there's definitely still real standout books in this era, but like I was less invested in the nation overall. I mean, like, the Hellfire Gala at this point in this comic is about to happen, and the trial of Magneto miniseries after that gets rid of the Crucibles. By the end of that series, they're not something the mutants need to do anymore to control the resurrection queue. And the tr- the loss of that means you can't get this issue again. Or the issue where Callisto and Storm have their Crucible scene. Or the issue of Way of X where Magneto and I can't remember the number the name of this character from way of x because i didn't really like the book overall but like that much more negative portrayal of the crucible and the like moral complexities of it are just sort of solved and it's just so interesting of a concept that as a reader we don't really want to see it be gotten rid of or solved i like the waiting room in terms of resurrecting mutants from like a long time ago, but aside from Thunderbird coming back, I don't think there's been any good results from it. Like, what I, I, I really want was like, okay, here's an influx of mutants from the 16th century. They all want to be alive again, so they've shown up in the in the resurrection queue via the waiting room. That would be funny. Um, but I mean, the the net result of it is actually just no one's going to do the Crucible anymore. We've solved that problem. But the interesting thing about it is the aspect, certainly in terms of like narrative, you having to fight for what you want. So it means you have characters who are willing to die in order to like get what they want. It's the like just basic, you know, storytelling fundamentals and you're able to just have a whole issue that is about this character and their motivations and their fears and their desires. And it's this built-in narrative device, and you can kind of do it as many times as you want because this is a regular ritual. 
that is just happening in the background throughout, you know, this first half of the Krakoa era. Yeah. But uh yeah. This is this is the 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 goodbye to Krakoan era X-Men storytelling. Um maybe Krakoa will come back. I guess we'll see. But I doubt we're gonna get another book like this anytime in the next five years. And I think that's a shame because I think this is one of the most interesting X-Men books we've ever gotten. Yeah. That that was a much more unreservedly recommended book, certainly, than last week's. So it's also us ending the summer on a much more celebratory note, sort of. Celebratory and mournful. I don't know. We ended on the better comic. We ended on the better comic, but also downer ending. I don't think we're going to get another comic like this off of X-Men, at least, for a while. Which is a shame, because I want I, I mean, I wish that Ayala had stuck around. I don't know. The, like, the Charlie Jane Anders took over the book after Ayala left, but that was initially announced to be a guest arc, and then that sort of became a, oh, actually, once this arc is over, the book's cancelled. And then there was a follow-up miniseries also written by Charlie Jane Anders. And that stuff's fine, but it's more about, like, a couple of the kid characters in this and Escapade and less some of the characters from the original New Mutants cast that I'm really attached to. So it just sort of interests me less sort of by default. And then it's um, it's part of the era of Krakoa that comes after this where the nation itself is a little less complicated and a lot of the problems that characters have have kind of been solved in terms of the nation state. Uh, still pretty good. I'd still recommend it, but it's just not as special as this. It, it also doesn't have Rod Rice drawing it, so it is kind of an unfair comparison. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, I don't think Ayala's done any Marvel book for a while, so maybe they've signed up for a, a contract with DC or whatever. I don't know. But uh, I, I would love to see them write more mutant stuff because this it's it's really good. They do a really good job with it, and their approach to it is very different from most of the other writers. But yeah, this comic's great. Everyone should read the IL and E Mutants run. Um, everyone should read X Men generally. Most X Men books are bad, but most X Men books you hear about are pretty good. And we've, I think we've certainly provided an ample number of recommendations this summer. Yeah, we liked all but one and a half of the stuff we covered, I would say. Like, last week, I'm gonna say, like, half of it I quite liked. Half of it, I didn't. I don't necessarily like the direction it's going, but it it, it is, at least it's still engaging storytelling. But, uh, yeah, I mean, basically everything else we've covered has been great. Yeah, this wraps up our summer X-Men coverage, and I don't know about you, but... What we said about them being good comics aside, I am so ready to start having us read something else. I am very ready for variety. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Uh, Speaking of which, what are you having me read? Because I wound up with, well, I lied. We have a special event next week. Yeah. So as long as there's not like a last minute schedule change, fingers crossed, um, 
the plan is for us to have a guest on next week and not just any guest, but having an actual comic book creator on the show. Um, we are going to be having Will Robson on to discuss his zombie anthology comic outbreaks. So yeah, zombies. Yeah. We're we're gonna be talking about zombies. So that should be fun having him on. I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Be excellent to each other.